Hello, and welcome to FuturePod. I'm Amanda Reeves. FuturePod gathers voices from the international field of futures and foresight. Through a series of interviews, the founders of the field and emerging leaders share their stories, tools, and experiences. Please visit futurepod.org for further information about this podcast series. Today, our guest is Susanna Carmen. Susanna is a strategic designer and research practitioner specializing in leadership, learning, and design for a rapidly changing world. She holds a master's degree in design futures, as well as diverse degrees in geology, music, and education, and an advanced diploma in holistic counseling. Susanna works with practitioners and consultants who are committed to fulfilling potential in others, weaving methods from futures thinking, systems, embodiment and integral theories, vertical leadership development, and speculative design. She's also the co-founder of Future Fit Learning, a leadership and learning consultancy committed to preparing people and organizations for the future of work. Welcome to FuturePod, Susanna. Thank you. It's lovely to be here. Lovely to have you here. First question, what is the Susanna Carmen story? And how did you find yourself as part of the Futures and Foresight community? Sure, sure. People might recognize from my accent, I am from the States. Mm -hmm. I'm from New York, near New York City. But I've lived in Australia for just shy of 25 years. I think what's relevant in my story is that I'm the child of teachers and educators. So all of us, my sister, my uncle, myself, today we all work in either leadership development or org development or culture transformation or around the edges of that work. Mm. So for example, my sister works with leaders in education. My uncle works in healthcare. And I work around my specialization with design leadership and change practitioners. So I guess what's interesting about it is that being the child of educators, the seed was planted to have a love, a lifelong love of learning. Mm. And that resulted in quite an eclectic educational and professional background with depth and breadth in a wide array of disciplines, as you were starting to read out in the intro there. I'd like to ask you about that. While preparing for this interview, I got quite excited by this eclectic educational background. I have degrees in geology and the natural sciences. I have a degree in contemporary music. I used to tour the Australian festival circuit as a songwriter and a multi-instrumentalist. That's quite a change. Yes. Well, (laughs) not so much when you think about the role arts practice plays in design and imagining future states. Mm. It's very similar. It's very pragmatic lineage of how you translate abstract knowledge into something very pragmatic and tangible and how you create the conditions for both individual expression and the transformation of what I would call the collective field, which really arises in the interaction between a performer and audience. Mm. So there's a lot to draw from that type of arts practice. But I also have a graduate diploma in education, and I worked in the Steiner, or what they call in the States, the Waldorf education system for about 15 years. And I studied somatic and artistic counseling and was a practicing therapist. I was invited into a business consulting company who were in need of the human development and cultural capabilities that I had. Mm -hmm. And I have a master's in design futures. So as you described, it's it's quite diverse. But on either side of this sort of lifelong learning trajectory, I've had these guide rails, which on the one side has been a life lived in community and at a time in my 20s with permaculture elders, learning about systems thinking in a very pragmatic way. And on the other side, you know, my own individual commitment to contemplative spiritual practice, which has been informed by 
Eastern philosophy, religion, mysticism since my teens. So I've kind of had that on the edges of my more conventional learning journey. I thought I'd find a home within design, particularly with an arts practice background, but quickly discovered that my contribution in that space kind of transcends and includes design. So ultimately, I'm quite transdisciplinary, and my sweet spot is in this intersection between design, leadership, and learning. And I came to the Futures and Foresight communities kind of through a combination of pathways. Through design, I had a relationship with a participatory action researcher, Hilary Bradbury, who had a conference that she delivered in Sweden, where I went and was a participant for about a week. Tony Hodgson and Bill Sharp, who are the creators of The Three Horizons, were key presenters and facilitators at the conference. So I got to move into that foresight space with them. And plus, my colleague and research collaborator, Kieran Murahi, who is the founder of a strategic foresight consultancy based in Victoria called Foresight Lane, we met in a leadership development program and we just became fast friends. We just like to build stuff. And so, you know, <laughs> while everyone else in the room was kind of like, let's resolve this conflict or let's address this, he and I were off, let's create something. Let's, so we kind of bonded in our passion and commitment to creativity and the impulse to co-create and co-design and what collective intelligence can contribute to futures that are co-created. That's beautiful. I guess I could say that today I take all of that and work with design, leadership, and change practitioners, both individual practitioners and consultancies delivering design leadership or change services. And I'm really committed to amplifying their impact so that their ability to fill potential in others and in systems can manifest. And I see what I'm doing as kind of one of many concentric circles of support, but where I feel most purposeful is in providing that strategic and developmental support to the ecology of practitioners who are in turn supporting others and to try and help these practitioners or support or create conditions for learning so that the unintended consequences of our stepping into systems are made more visible to us mm. so that we can do more good than harm. I'm going to simplify it. Yeah. <laughs> Fantastic. I'm curious how this looks in practice. Can you tell us a bit about Future Fit Learning? Yeah, so Future Fit Learning is a really interesting project. It's something I've worked on with three other women who either come from organizational development or culture change work. And I bring that human-centered design piece to the collaboration. And it's a true collaboration. It's for women who are mid-career. You know, we've had enough experience to know that a great framework and an excellent strategy is fantastic. But when the rubber hits the road, there's all these other pitfalls that you can encounter that have more to do with how we interact as people <laughs> that can constrain <laughs> change and development. So there's quite a lot of professional experience there. And we just started to come together before COVID to really explore how might we create the conditions for learning for a particular cohort of people so that they can step into the future with enhanced capacity to navigate complex, ambiguous, volatile, and uncertain conditions? We've been developing learning programs that are designed to be delivered inside of organizations to executives leading change processes. Great.
Moving on to question two. I'm interested in learning more about how you work. From this transdisciplinary approach, what are some of the core tools, methods, frameworks, or philosophies that you reach for to help people engage with possible futures? Yeah, it's going to be a long list. <laughs> and as I said, when I opened, I'm very eclectic, but I'm not a dabbler. Mm. Like I'm a generalist that likes to go really deep, deep enough to be able to integrate lots of different perspectives and disciplines and traditions into something that will really deepen the learning or what I would call knowledge transfer. So I'm drawing from disciplines like human-centered design, foresight, speculative design, embodiment theory, which really comes from all that time working with somatic therapies, systems thinking, complexity science, quantum social change theory, which is very enlivening for me at the moment, integral theory, vertical development, developmental psychology, and as I mentioned earlier, arts practice, and action research. And when you're working a transdisciplinary way, it's different than being multidisciplinary. In a transdisciplinary practice, you're bringing disparate but related disciplines together and you're weaving them together to create something new. Mm -hmm. An example of how I might do that practically is I take a tool like Sharp and Hodgson's Three Horizons tool mm -hmm. and then create a somatic simulation experience so that people can have a visceral sense of what it feels like in the body to exist in three concurrent realities in order to deepen insight and our potential for action that might include our embodied intelligence as well as our cognitive intelligence. Mm. A process like this experiments with the learning potential that's held in our body or our somatic engagement. Plus, it kind of combines us with, in the Three Horizons experiment, with this quantum superposition of three different times happening concurrently mm. so we can feel the potential and have empathy for people who are holding the pillars of different archetypes in different moments of the developmental journey of either an idea or a system or an organization. After saying all that, I could say, well, so what? What does that do? And from my point of view, it helps expand our thinking in beyond linear ways mm. and makes our preferences and the preferences of others more visible to us. I think the first workshop that I attended virtually during the first lockdown was a workshop where you ran the Three Horizons embodiment exercise, but adapted for how do you get a group of people to do this while they're together but separate. I've done quite a few different Three Horizons processes, but what I found really striking about your approach was that way of moving it from just an intellectual understanding to a really deep felt embodied understanding and moving that knowledge just from the head into the full body. And it was a very different experience uh, than just talking about the horizons. Yeah. And I guess my thinking about this, you know, because I come from a background of education and human development and leadership. Mm -hmm is that the more senses we can enliven in the learning process, the deeper the insight can be. And the deeper the insight, I'm operating on the assumption, the stronger the move to action is amplified and action that's been informed by deep insight. I try and bring the embodied element into the learning process because I feel like there's so much information that is accessible to us that we're not calling forth. And it's not an either or, like we're either in our thinking or we're in our embodied state. It's like, how do we get it all switched on? Because mm. in this, what I'm calling a liminal time or a time between worlds or this moment of transition, 
everything that's worked before may not work moving forward. And how do we start to glean access to all this intelligence, both individually and collectively, and from the systems that we're complicit and participating in? Mm -hmm. How do we start to glean information that we can use in pragmatic ways that will give us vectors or pointer signs in directions that we might not have imagined if we just only had one of those dimensions of ourselves switched on? How do we get our thinking, our feeling, and our being, and our gut, how do we get it all switched on and online at the same time? This is where speculative design meets quantum thinking meets (laughs) adult developmental theory. I guess the way I like to think about it too, this embodiment piece with making things more visible, that which we cannot see visible. Yes. Uh, Lisa Leahy and Robert Keegan, who are known for their immunity Mm -hmm. change work, Lisa has this metaphor where you're looking through glasses at writing on a wall, but then you take the glasses off and you look at the glasses and you see that the writing's actually on the lenses themselves. Yes. So how might these pivots and what we are able to see both in ourselves and the spaces in between us and these sort of more distributed leadership models and in the contribution to systems that we're participating in, how might these pivots enable us to see the world in a different way and make a different quality of contribution. That's beautiful. There's also something about this type of work gets us closer to that myth and metaphor space. Yeah. Thinking in terms of CLA, we start to be able to access and interact more with worldviews and mental models. The more of us is involved, I feel. Yeah. And CLA is great. I've seen so many people work with it in so many different ways. My colleague, as I mentioned earlier, Kieran Marhi, he really takes people on a journey You know, I kind of describe it like there's two rafts sitting on the ocean Mm -hmm. and there's the raft of the present and the raft of the future. So it's kind of that sort of quantum notion of simultaneously concurrent, like an object can be in two places at the same time. Mm. The journey is to dive off one raft, dive deep down under the water and then surface on the next one. But those two rafts are still coexisting together. But what's that new story? What's the new myth? What's the new archetype? What's the new narrative within Mm. which you can position your purpose? and your role in imagining what's next, either for you or for the spaces in between us or for the systems that you're participating in and contributing to and wanting to have an impact on. So that takes us into question three, really, about what you're seeing ahead. Susanna, what emerging futures are grabbing your attention at the moment? This is such a loaded question (laughs) because, you know, one person's or one group's of people's future utopia is another one's dystopia. Mm, Yes. So I might answer that in two ways, philosophically, which is my bias and my preference. (laughs) So pragmatically, some of the things I see people doing, some experiments that are happening at the edges or in that 2H to 3H dimension, if we move back to the three horizons. Mm -hmm. From a philosophical perspective, I'm interested in a set of guiding principles or vectors, if you will, rather than this sort of ideal future state. Hmm. And so I'm interested in the exploration of what might we be able to co-create if we lean into some of these principles or vectors. Hmm. So the first one is looping back this past, present, future as superimposed dimensions of reality. Mm -hmm. You know, what happens, what changes in our behavior now when we think about time in nonlinear ways? Mm. And I don't try and answer that question. I just try and stay genuinely curious. Like, yeah, what does happen (laughs) when we, I, or it consider time in nonlinear ways? What do we bring into the present? I mean, we're doing that all the time. We're bringing our history. We're bringing our trauma, our wounds, our 
mm-hmm. constructs, things that we're conscious of, things that we're not conscious of. We're bringing all of everything that's come before, like even the whole idea of how we construct meaning, how we educate ourselves. It's all based on the sort of combination of pragmatism and critical theory that we're not even really paying attention to. We're just it's like that story mm-hmm. of the big fish swims by the little fish and says, how's the water today? And the little fish says, what, what is he talking about? What's water? So <laughs> there's so much of that going on. But this notion of past, present, and future as being superimposed dimensions of reality. And what do we create today when we start to think about time in nonlinear ways? Mm. My second principle is kind of like a fusion of humanism and critical theory, whereby individual agency and collective action are enacted with a mutually inspired sense of what is true, beautiful, and good. Mm. Well, this is a pickle because, you know, as I said before, one person or a group of people's sense of what true, beautiful, and good is, is another person's nightmare. Mm. It's all very subjective and loaded. That's the story we tell ourselves about that situation. And the question is, well, is it? You know, it is and it isn't. It's like kind of both, right? (laughs) So how do I frame questions? How do I frame these questions and then slow down sufficiently to be with the questions and listen for what might arise Mm. to inform either my action or collective actions. I mean, I don't go around saying to people, what do you think is good? What do you think is beautiful? What do you think is true? I I kind of go, you know, when it's timely in the collective space or in my own personal inquiry, what would love do? Mm. Yes. What would art do? What would nature do? Like, what would nature do in this circumstance? How would nature scale this? Or... What would love do around this moral and ethic dilemma or this commitment to social justice or, you know, integrating more pluralistic values into the story of humanity's unfolding journey? You know, what would love Mm. do? You know, as I said, that's like this kind of second guiding principle for me, you know, setting up the conditions and being an inquiry that is a fusion of humanism and critical theory rather than it's just my subjective individual journey that matters. No, it's the collective deconstruction of everything that's wrong with the system that we have to have our attention on. And we're at the effect of that. I'm like, no, it's both. How do we fuse both of these dimensions of understanding together? Yes. My third vector or guiding principle is related to that. It's this notion of depolarizing perspective. Mm. This tension between subjective truth, everybody has one and they're all equally true, and objective experience like, no, there's a single narrative and that narrative is driving us forward in the story of progress. I would say, let's explore how to depolarize that tension between subject and object. What comes after critical theory? Mm. What follows postmodernism? What do we recreate after deconstructing this kind of singular dominant Anglo-European narrative about our human story? What comes next? What can we co-create that's going to include and transcend all that has come before rather than make these tensions, these polarized tensions, these divergent perspectives increasingly more divergent? What might the emerging story that isn't quite written yet have to say (laughs) about how we all can contribute to the alleviation of needless suffering for all life everywhere. And, and how am I participating in this weaving of the new story? What is my role? And sometimes just being in the inquiry creates a quality of presence and a field of listening 
that generates something new and inspires a different type of action forward. It brings to mind a wonderful reflective question from Jerry Colonna. How am I complicit in creating the conditions I say I don't want? Yeah, and I think that's really powerful because that is leaning towards that more humanistic side of the polarity. Mm. But at the same time, there's an invitation there for us to step into shadow, both individual and collective shadow. Call it trauma, Mm -hmm. call it shadow, whatever you want to call it. And I believe that before we even start trying to imagine future states, those of us who are serious practitioners need to do that piece of work. Mm. Because if we don't, we're not making what we are subject to object to ourselves and the potential to do harm rather than deliver truth, beauty, and goodness into systems is, I think, hampered. So I'm it's timely in the conversation that you bring that forward. So where can we see these principles being played out? How do people take them into the world? It's an interesting question because the first person I can talk about, it's a little bit like bringing the past into the present, but also Mm -hmm. into the future, (laughs) you know, like kind of converging those three dimensions of reality. So Thomas Bjorkman is a Swedish guy. He's part of this metamodern movement, which is like what comes after Mm postmodernism. There's a book called The Listening Society. Franzi Heinacht, a philosopher who lives in the Swiss Alps, has written this book. And of course, it's ironic because there is no Franzi Heinacht. (laughs) He's a makeup philosopher. So you have to get from the beginning of the book that it's ironic and the value of irony in a metamodern world. But Thomas Berkman's work with others has been to revive this humanistic development movement, Mm. mirroring the late 18th century folk schools across Scandinavia. He's written a book called The Nordic Secret. It's really about remembering what that part of the world did in the late 19th century as Scandinavia was trying to make the pivot from Mm -hmm. an agricultural economy to an industrial economy. And these folk schools around Norway, Sweden, Denmark Mm -hmm. were designed for young people, you know, in their late teens into their late 20s to go and live collectively in community for six months to a year at a time and do human development work together and learn new skills and how to engage with the world in a new way. Mm. And the legacy of that work was part of the early stages of the civil rights movement in the States. Rosa Parks had attended a folk school in the South. So it really was the impetus for unintended consequences down the road. But Thomas Bjorkman has been creating conditions where young people can come together and kind of re-engage with this learning. Mm. And apparently that part of the world had a very seamless transition because up to 30% of the youth in those countries had participated in these government-sponsored programs wow. and were able to do that subject-object move to really make visible that which they could not see about themselves, mm. relationships and the systems they were participating in to start thinking differently about the now and the future they wanted to live into. So that's some interesting work, that meta-modern work. Mm. And then there's some groovy stuff happening. I don't know if your audience has heard about the Metacurrency Project. And Holochain, which is like an alternative to blockchain technology, which is distributed ledger systems. Mm -hmm. The folks at Metacurrency Project, they're really looking at these new platforms for making visible multiple currencies Hmm. and how to trade them, currencies that include and then stretch beyond fiat currency in these distributed ledger systems Mm -hmm. to acknowledge and make visible and to trade more of the real tacit value present in human systems like love and (laughs) spiritual capital and Mm. deep knowledge and wisdom. So there's some interesting work happening around the edges there. 
a couple other things. This revival of the commons. Mm-hmm. The P2P foundations created these copy fair licenses. They call them peer production licenses, which is all about licensing IP in a way that reimagines what ownership and value co-creation can mean. Mm-hmm. It's designed so that commoners and cooperatives and nonprofits, they can share and reuse the material that they co-create, but commercial entities can't come in and take it for profit without contributing back into the commons. Huh. That's an interesting practical move that really challenges our ideas around what ownership means and this thirst for knowledge as something we can own, mm. as opposed to knowledge as something that we can share and be co-generative with. Mm. And then Hillary Bradbury, as I mentioned earlier, she's got an organization called Action Research Plus. Mm-hmm. It's a platform that draws in members of the academy, but also sits outside of the academy where people can do deep and profound action research, both in the first person, including their own perspective, as well as experiments that are external to them. But her work is really around exploring power dynamics and this mm power under, power over versus power with, and making these dynamics more visible, both in a critical theory sense, but also in a humanistic sense as well. Making it visible, all that we can't see about ourselves, our relationships, the systems we participate in, and then generating experiments to test and reconstruct new ways forward Mm. that harnesses collective intelligence. And it's striking to me how so much fantastic intentionality is present in the great things people want to do and how constrained and hamstrung most of us are around power dynamics, Mm. both at the system level, but even at the individual level and how we are in relationship with each other. So it's fascinating work that she's developing. Listening to you talk about these pockets of the future, it sounds like there's a view of an emerging future that's more reflective, sensitive, and responsive. Because my focal point is around learning, design, and leadership, I'm interested in what we create, what we manifest. I'm interested in the material spaces, but I'm most enlivened by the benchmark way of constructing meaning that a tipping point at minimum practitioners need to be operating with Mm -hmm. in order to have our unintended consequences made more visible. So that, as I said earlier, doing more good than harm and that nonlinear thinking, not that there's anything wrong with linear thinking, it's great, but to be able to do that and this sort of nonlinear approach, mm-hmm. this very beyond binary, both end way of holding tension, Yes, being able to depolarize perspectives, hold multiple perspectives, mm-hmm. lean into complexity with curiosity. I feel like there is no future without that <laughs> capacity being scaled out. So that's my deepest hope for the future. And my Mm. role is how do I create the conditions where more people have those capacities and I can't reach into every system. So I'm creating circles or ecologies of support for the practitioners who are reaching into different systems. That's where I feel I can contribute the most value right now at this time. Question four, what I think of as our dental party question, when you meet someone who doesn't necessarily know what you do, how do you explain what it is that you do? Well, I have to say, I don't start by saying, look, I'm really here to diffuse the tension between humanism and critical theory. (laughs) I don't start there. Mm -hmm. And I don't often start with creating fields of learning. I I really try not to start in those places. I really try and go, okay, (laughs) what can I make 
how can I make myself accessible Mm -hmm. to anybody? And I've been practicing this for quite a while because I keep getting feedback from my daughter (laughs) and my husband who are just like, what are you talking about? (laughs) And they tell me I'm getting better at it. But basically what I say is, look, I'm a strategic designer, which is really just a fancy way of saying I help people solve complex problems, the types of problems Mm -hmm. that have to do with services, systems, and human interactions. And I focus on working with design leadership and change practitioners, Mm -hmm. either independently or with their consultancies, so that I can provide ecologies of support. Beautiful. If they ask, oh, that's interesting. Tell me more. Some people go, "Uh uh-huh. And then they take their drink and move on. (laughs) Like, okay. (laughs) Yes. And then the people, usually it's architects. You know, like if I'm at a dinner party, it's someone who's done work around urban planning or Mm -hmm. community development or architects. They go, oh, tell me more. Because they have that background in design. And so I say, well, I do it in four ways. I do something I call strategy design, which is I get invited by consultancies that are doing design leadership and change work. And I rock up with my Mm -hmm. transdisciplinary toolkit, like a giant medicine bag. And I offer myself as a strategic thinking partner, like your virtual Mm -hmm. strategic thinking partner. And I provide them with a combination of organizing and liberating structures so that they can think differently. They can prioritize action. Mm -hmm. They can scale up their purposeful impact amidst highly disruptive conditions. Because as I said earlier, we're living in this liminal time between worlds that's affecting all of us. So how do you navigate that right now and continue to be purposeful and do good work? That's one way. And then I do do that strategy design piece. And then oftentimes consultancies, they want me to kind of zoom in with them after we've done that big picture review to prioritize action. I'll do sort of a combination of service design and product design knowing that in these consultancies, the products they're designing are services. They're primarily knowledge transfer services. So I really work with them on how to really get the conditions right for transformation and deep knowledge transfer long before participants are actually engaging in the coaching program or the workshops or the trainings Mm -hmm. or the labs or the developmental experiences. In a lot of that work, I'm bringing human-centered design and service design and some integral theory principles together and systems thinking, how to look at their business and what they're developing as a system Mm -hmm. and how to do that first diamond inquiry to really clarify Mm -hmm. what the problem is they're trying to solve before trying to come up with a great solution to the wrong problem. And oftentimes these consultancies already have their own instruction designer, so they don't need me in at that level of detail. Mm -hmm. But then, you know, I've had a really interesting client recently that is a culture consultancy. And they were like, right, we want to be more sophisticated and mature and acknowledging of the true value that our practitioners and consultants and employees are bringing into our consultancy as a system. Mm -hmm. How do we move beyond this transaction between late human capability for fiat currency for pay? How do we start to acknowledge the full quality of the value we can contribute to people's professional development and personal development and what they can contribute to us? And so that's a really juicy challenge because I think there are a lot of professional services consultancies that are ready to take that leap into what's next? Like, how else could we be doing this? How else could we be creating ecologies of value co-creation? Given that we're doing this work with other people, how do we do it with ourselves that isn't based on more sort of (laughs) conventional, traditional percentage splits and different agreements? So Mm. that's been really interesting exploration. And then I do this transition leadership lab. It's a learning lab for design leadership and change practitioners specifically, individually. And then I do some individual coaching, which is really just working at a smaller scale with individuals who are wanting to develop their practice or have an experiment that they need to develop or are really looking at how to grow 
their own reflexivity, this piece we keep talking about, making visible that which we cannot see about ourselves, relationship systems, so that they can Mm. be more mature and impactful practitioners when they intervene in systems. That brings us nicely to our fifth question, which is the open question for our guests. And what I really wanted to ask you about the Transition Leadership Lab that you've been running. Can you tell our audience a bit more about that? Yes, I can. Transition Leadership Lab, along with my own life's journey, has its own origin myth. I spent three years doing master's research around the inquiry, how do we create learning experiences for design leadership and change practitioners that's going to enhance our reflexivity Mm. so that we can lean into this liminal time between worlds as skillfully and as mindfully as possible, especially when the conditions are amplifying, it's becoming more volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous. Mm And right when I was peaking with some of my prototyping, I was prototyping with lots of different groups of people across that time period and even before the research began. Mm -hmm. But we really peaked in March of 2020, (laughs) and we were meant to do a prototype with a group of people through RMIT, and we couldn't. We had to do it online. And so we did. I think you participated in that. Mm -hmm. Um, That's how we first met. We did all this great stuff, a lot of what I've been describing thus far today. And did we discover any sort of unicorn breakthrough, like, oh, we know how to do this better than anybody (laughs) else who's been doing it for the last 100 years? Well, maybe not. But what we did discover is that this cohort of practitioners really has an appetite. Mm. They really need, as I said earlier, this ecology of support from peers who understand their context, their challenges, Mm. and the conditions they're working in but also from someone who can really hold space for them. Mm. So I was like, okay, I'm going to build a sandbox for practitioners to work together. And I kind of made a deal with RMIT. Look, if I build this, will current students who are in your Master of Design Futures program, Mm -hmm. would they be able to take this lab and get elective credit? And they came back to me and said, well, if you send us a rubric and (laughs) give us an outcomes map, but did all that. And the response was yes there are some students here who we think are good candidates for the program Mm -hmm. and they meet your criteria and your basic standards. We'll give them that approval. They have to be students first. Mm -hmm. And so I said, okay, I guess I have to build this now because, (laughs) you know, it wasn't like this burning up, you know, my consultancy and my practice was already up and happening, Mm. but I really just felt like why spend all that time with research and not actually then really test the experiment that you're developing yes. if you're really a designer. So I went ahead and it was designed for nine people. And it's really for those practitioners who already have a sophisticated set of tools, skills, and mindset, mm. but have had enough experience to know that what they have is still insufficient to meet this liminal moment and that they need more. And they need to bring on the full ebb and flow of their total embodied intelligence as practitioners beyond the great frameworks and the great tools and the next shiny thing. They need to bring more of their full selves in order to have the purposeful impact they want to have. And also to be able to hold the torch for their clients, stand beside their clients, hold the ambiguity with their clients Mm -hmm. as together we're all facing this sort of unknowable future. Some of the core principles were, okay, I want to create something for people around learning that is, I think uh, Tyson Yukaporta talks about this in Sand Talk Mm -hmm. as one of the knowledges and wisdoms, this idea of translating abstract knowledge into pragmatic knowledge and creating a virtuous loop between the two. I sort of Mm -hmm. took on that archetype. How can I create that experience? So that was one guiding principle. 
And the other was, how do we create the conditions where both what I call vertical learning, which is this reflexive piece I keep talking about, making visible that which we cannot see, plus horizontal learning, new shiny things, new frameworks, new skills. How do we create a sandbox where both of those things can happen that are relevant for design leadership and change practitioners? Because there's a lot of places you could go to do either one Mm. or the other, but not a lot of places where you can go, we can do both. And then how do we do it ground in the principle, participatory action research principle of learning with. So it's not a place where you come and get told. Or how do we really do the learning with element where we're really exchanging knowledge and experience where we can learn from each other Mm. and how to keep it intimate and safe and have the cohort feel really held? Because in that space, I feel like if we want to do good work in the world, we have to really be willing to challenge our own thinking, our own constructs. Mm -hmm. We have to sit in the discomfort of that, be in the dis-ease of that. Mm. And that's not for everybody. But Transition Leadership Lab was designed based on those principles. So we created a nine-week learning lab for these practitioners to do that Mm -hmm. work. It's blended learning. So there's some asynchronous, self-paced micro-learning content. Mm -hmm. There's social learning where you have to interact with each other in an online platform. There's project-based learning. So this is a sort of conceptual to pragmatic where people come with the seed of a project And they develop that into an experiment. So they leave at the end a live experiment that they can really test everything they've learned in in the context of their work or their lives. There's also this learning and transitioning from one way of seeing the world to another. It's not something that happens in a vacuum and it's not a totally individual process. It's relational. Mm. We're not born by ourselves and we don't die by ourselves. These transition moments are relational. They happen with. So we set it up where everybody is in a peer coaching relationship with another partner throughout the group. And then they get some individual coaching from me, particularly when they need to shape up their experiments. I guess it's a little bit like Theory U. We go on this learning transition journey Mm -hmm. and we introduce some of the frameworks and concepts that I have been talking about earlier from quantum social change theory and Mm -hmm. integral theory and Kinevin and looking at complexity science and so forth. We start the journey looking at how some of those concepts can be translated into practice and what kind of actual tools we use. And then we move into, well, what's going to constrain transition, your transition and the transition you want to take your clients through. And we do a piece of work around power dynamics, this power with, power under, power over. And then coming out of that, we also have to take a look at, well, how do power dynamics not only constrain forward action and the harnessing of collective intelligence, but how do they re-trigger our own traumatic experiences? Because everyone's been mm. power under from being a small child in the family system. How does that constrain how we contribute? And so we do a little bit of work around that. And then we bring Kieran Murray in, as I've mentioned earlier, and he does mm-hmm. futures work with us. We work with CLA and we kind of move into the mythic and the reimagining of who we could be coming out of that space, working in really haptic mm-hmm. ways, embodied in haptic ways. Then we have Lisa Norton from Parsons New School in Mm -hmm. New York. She's a specialist in design leadership and a faculty member at at Parsons. She comes in and does this sort of mysterious synthesis piece where we start to weave together all the learnings to really look at how are each of us going to, again, translate conceptual individual experience Mm -hmm. into a practical experiment that impacts us and the systems we're participants in. Mm. And then I round it out where we really shape up each person's experiment and share our thinking, share our experiments with one another to 
towards the end in a way that isn't like, oh, look at my experiment. What do you think? It's more like, in my experiment, this is how I am applying what I've learned. And each of us are listening, going, oh, that's how you're testing it out. Mm. Let me see how, I want to try what you're doing in my context so I can see if it'll work because we're really not interested in wrapping a fence around any particular way of thinking or any discipline. I'm creating an environment where we just want to know what works. And then we want to tell each other what works so that we can go <laughs> test that yes. in our own in our own spaces. And understanding what works in what context. There's a lot of different tools that work better and worse in other situations. Totally. And I have to say, my role is to design the field, hold the field, design the field in a way that's actually been informed. Because when we did the first one, I was designing it. I was going, I was like, okay, what are we going to do next? I was trying <laughs> to really embody the principles of being adaptive. Mm -hmm. I'm there holding the field, getting the conditions right for deep learning and transformation. But I'm also there to learn with everybody and to capture and grow and in a kind of wicked way. I don't mean wicked in an evil way. I mean, wicked in a clever way. <laughs> I'm trying to create a community of people around me that I want to work in a transdisciplinary way so that we can learn together to figure out what works, right? <laughs> I'm as interested in what people are discovering yes. and experimenting with for myself and my own practice as I am for theirs. Susanna, thanks for sharing. I'm so excited by your approach to creating ecologies of support, and I suspect some of our listeners might be as well. On behalf of the FuturePod community, thank you for making the time to tell us more about your practice, and we wish you luck with the next Transition Leadership Lab kicking off in July. I'm really grateful that you invited me, and I'm just very honoured to be included in the community and in the conversation. It's very rewarding to be able to make a contribution. Thank you. This has been another production from FuturePod. FuturePod is a not-for-profit venture. We exist through the generosity of our supporters. If you would like to support FuturePod, visit the Patreon link on our website. Thank you for listening. Remember to follow us on Instagram and Facebook. This is Amanda Reeves saying goodbye for now. Mm -hmm.